Hello, and welcome to How Books Are Made, a podcast about the art and science of making books. I'm Arthur Atwell. Several years ago, a friend started a publishing company that only sold e-books. He was a smart guy, but I couldn't see how this was a good idea. It was widely accepted that publishing companies made their money from print, and that despite their early promise, e-books still barely made back their production costs. That company has just been shortlisted for Independent Publisher of the Year at the British Book Awards. They have repeatedly shown that sensible innovations in how you commission books, how you make them, how you market them, and how you pay authors can completely change the publishing game. I have never been happier to be proven wrong. That company is Canelo, a fiction publisher based in London. They're a team we should all be learning from. So I'm going to do my best to rope their leaders in to chat to me here, one by one. I'm starting out by talking to Nick Barreto, Canelo's chief technology officer. Like me, Nick is a tinkerer. We love building little machines that do the drudge work of bookmaking for us, so that we can put our brains to more creative things. We'll dig into some technical bits and pieces, and we'll do our best to keep it all accessible. Certainly, if you've ever worked in any part of book production before, you'll be right at home. Nick, it is such a pleasure to chat to you today. I'm especially excited about this episode because we get to talk about some real technical nitty-gritty uh, which is one of my happy places. Thanks for taking some time to join me on the podcast. Oh, thanks very much. It's my pleasure. I mean, it's uh, I don't often get to talk about those sorts of things either, so it should be a lot of fun. From where I stand, I reckon you're one of the most inventive and successful technical leaders in commercial publishing right now. And I'm looking forward to digging into some of those details of what you built at Canelo. But to start, I wanted to ask about one of your earliest roles because once upon a time you worked at Snowbooks, where one of my favorite people, Emma Barnes, was a co-founder and would soon start building the amazing consonants publishing management software. Did you and she have an inkling back then that you'd both go on to become these pioneering role models for publishing tech? Oh, I don't know that I had any. I had any inkling about anything at all back then. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Emma's absolutely one of my favorite people too. We use consonants um, at Canelo, and it's it absolutely is a big part of how we're able to do a lot of what we do. I, I like to embarrass Emma when, when when we're doing like events together and stuff because you know I, I, it's not too much of a stretch of of the truth when I say that she's one of the reasons I'm a programmer nowadays. Wow, you know, it was my first ever sort of job. Yeah, I think I think the very first day I just had a, a book on XSLT thrown at me and said, "Can you take some of this Onyx XML data and parse it so that InDesign will understand it?" As wow. InDesign didn't really understand nested XML very well, and what we wanted to do was, um, you know, flow the data in so that you could create a catalog. So you just needed to design, you know, a few pages and and flow the data in. But yeah, it's it certainly come a long way from two of us were sitting in the room and her son who was like three years old or something at the time walking around playing in between between the two of us <laughs> um yeah it's it's wonderful to watch um continents grow and grow and their team there is is wonderful as well that's amazing it just goes to show if you just work alongside those people what can happen you know in your mind how things get shared but not just skills but just the the drive to 
to do these kind of innovative automated processes in publishing? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the mindset, I think, was mm. instilled in me from, from then on. I mean, I, I think I did a, a little bit of dabbling with automation at the time, but certainly it, it absolutely came from Emma, the, the idea that, you know, there's so much admin, right, in publishing. There's so many things that you do over and over and over. And actually, a lot of the time, this is what programmers do. If you find yourself doing something three or four times in a row, hmm, maybe I should automate that. The, the concept that Emma talks about is, you know, you automate away everything to free up your brain, to free up your time, to do the things that matter. Yeah. And that's certainly been, you know, a really key thing at Canelo. You know, we don't want to spend time doing something, you know, sort of menial. We want to have the brain space to, to think and, and be innovative and, and make the decisions that matter. Yeah, absolutely. So you've been automating publishing tasks pretty much your whole career. I know you were at Penguin working in some automation there. I wasn't at Penguin for very long. It was my placement because I did, I did a master's in publishing. And sort of very early on in that, it became clear that I was often the only person in the room or sometimes the only person in the building who had any sort of technical aptitude. <laughs> You know, I, I don't have a programming background, you know, at all. I, my, like most people in publishing, I've got, you know, a, a literature degree. I've become a programmer over time, just being self-taught. But, mm. but there, you know, certainly I had an, an aptitude. And when I think back, probably I, I don't know why people weren't advising me as a as sort of a seventeen, eighteen year old saying, "Hmm, maybe you should consider doing computer science at university." <laughs> yeah, that that well, that placement at Penguin was funny because I am. Um, I remember very clearly somebody said, oh, God, in, you know, the interns, interns are potentially quite hard work for a company and a lot of, you know, mm -hmm. drain because you, you got to give them something to do. You got to give them something useful to do um, that's mm -hmm. useful for you as well as for them. And, you know, it's the classic thing where people just think up of a, a very time consuming, very menial task for, for an intern to do and think, OK, well, I don't have to worry about them for X number of hours. It'll take them to deal with this. <laughs> and and uh, somebody must have really hated me because they, the editor asked was explaining how it was a it was a co-edition book. There's a book about dinosaurs and they um you know the book was split into two parts. You know, the first part of it was all about like the different time periods mm -hmm. that the earth went through, right? Geological uh, ages. Right. Um and then a second half of the book, which was actually two thirds of the book, but was um about specific dinosaurs. And uh the German co edition partners decided that they didn't care about time periods of the earth. This is boring stuff we want to we want to see the dinosaurs this is the cool stuff yeah get to the pictures of the t-rex yeah quite but but the problem was that they lost however many it was you know i'm going to say 72 pages at the start of the book um which meant all of the index references would be incorrect ah, for, for right. the page numbers and so and so the the editor told me hey go through the the index and you know update all the page references please and you know they thought this was going to take me like a week right i mean there's yeah. hundreds and hundreds of index entries and I very quickly started it doing like that, going through each one. And I realized that, hmm, hang on a second. The, the numbers are changing by the same amount every time. We've lost the same number of pages. Right. Can I perform math to numbers in InDesign? And so I you know, Googled a bit and there was a, you know, you can, you can automate stuff in InDesign. Mm. And somebody had did done just that, written a little script that I downloaded um, and it let me perform math on numbers. And it was actually really great because it actually let you do it specifically not just on any numerals but numbers that were of a particular um paragraph style ah so so I, I was able to target just the index entries and say okay don't touch the page numbers don't touch whatever when somebody says a hundred thousand years ago but in the style that is in the index subtract or, or subtract 72 from everything yeah um and so i came back you know whatever two or three hours later yeah and, and said here you go i'm done and they looked at me like i was insane <laughs> but that's the magic right yeah uh, that is what we're trying to do, yeah. 
I use this example a lot when I give well, learning to code talks and stuff like that. Because particularly in publishing, I feel that you don't have to you don't have to necessarily write the code yourself. You just need to le- teach yourself to think like a programmer a little bit. Mm. Because more often than not, somebody else has already built something right. that will do what you want. And so a little bit of Googling goes a very long way. Or, or just the willingness to, to muck in and run a script it will take you a really long way. You don't actually need to learn. You know, yeah. I, I probably hadn't written anything that you would actually call a program at the time at all. You know, I knew a little bit of you know how HTML markup worked, but HTML isn't programming, right? It's it's just a document. For sure, yeah, it comes naturally to most editors HTML, and from there you just need a little gateway drug to the automation step, some little thing that you manage to pull off yourself that can then grow to the next more challenging automated task, and yeah. and from there on it can really grow. And you went on to use those skills at Bloomsbury and Quirkus, and then about six years ago, you co-founded Canelo, and that's gone on to become a, a real publishing force. At the time, I got to admit, I thought that Canelo sounded marvelous, but totally harebrained because it was an ebook only publishing company. And I couldn't imagine how you were going to make that work financially because I had seen that most publishers were barely making back their production money on ebooks. All the money was really coming from print. So for you as the CTO, as that, in that co-founding team, what is the problem that you knew you had to solve in order to make that whole business work? Well, I mean, it's a problem that we solved partially because we had a totally different model in the sense that we weren't paying in advances and we were giving authors a much higher royalty. Mm. You know, and, and that, that model is, is true to this day. I, I'm not aware of any other publisher anywhere in the world that pays royalties as high as, as we do for authors on ebooks. Yeah. Once certain escalators are hit, we'll pay 60% of the revenue that we receive from an ebook through to an author. It's amazing. We know we can do that because after, you know, an ebook has covered its costs, right? You're talking about once the escalators have been hit, mm. every single sale is sort of pure profit because there's no marginal cost to produce an ebook. It's a digital file. Mm. You know, so so the economics of that were clear to us. Mm. But definitely the other part of the of the thing, which is really what you're getting at, the the cost to produce ebooks being high for publishers mostly is a result of the fact that they're working backwards from print. Right. And when you're designing for for print, you're designing sort of visual things. And and typesetting has very long-standing semantics that are communicated purely in a visual sort of way. Mm. But to work backwards from that to get to good quality semantic HTML can be quite hard work. And all of the publishing tools that we are used to using, I was talking about InDesign earlier, mm. are actually pretty terrible at generating good quality semantic HTML. Mm. Certainly, you know, if, if you're sort of designing for a print page. Sure. So you know, I, I knew that we were going to have to do things a little bit differently because we were sort of skipping that step. We didn't, we didn't need to make a print book. Right. And Word is also part of the problem, right? I mean, it, it, it suffers from the same issue that the InDesign does, and that it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a presentational software. It's, it sort of mimics a printed page. And there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong with Word. DocX is, is actually XML in the background, but there's a lot of metadata that you can't necessarily see when you paste in or you copy and paste from somewhere mm-hmm. that can cause all kinds of problems. Sure. And, and that metadata carries through when you try and output HTML from Word. Word is terrible at making HTML as, as is in design. And the solution we eventually arrived at was Markdown. Markdown was going to be how we were going to generate good quality, clean, semantic HTML for our books. And for people who haven't come across Markdown before, yeah, we're talking about plain text, but it's just structured in such a way 
that it's easy for humans to write, but is also regular enough that a computer can then turn that into nice clean HTML very easily. Is that a fair description? That's about right. I mean, it's it's intended to be very, very simple indeed. And it is plain text, which really was the key for us, because I knew that as soon as we were in Markdown, there wasn't going to be anything else creeping in, right? Mm. You can only see that that's there. Yep. It's not like Word, where if you copy and paste something, it might look like you want it to. But secretly, there's an XML lang, you know, <laughs> Arabic in there that's going to flip around the the order of the you know the characters going left or right suddenly. Yeah, we we couldn't get away from using Word because authors use Word, and and we can't tell yeah. we couldn't tell our authors to author in a different way. Mm. We just needed to build a tool chain around the things that we couldn't change, so that by the time an author delivered to us what they would normally deliver to anybody else, we could take that through our workflow and produce a really really good quality, beautiful ebook at relatively low cost. The transformation that we were sort of relying on from, from Word into, into Markdown from us is through a wonderful, wonderful tool, an open source one called Pandoc. Then at that point, you're getting Word docs in from authors because that's just the reality about authors, right? Yeah. You're getting that into Markdown with Pandoc immediately. So now you've got this nice clean text. And I suppose from that point, the jump from the text you have to an EPUB is entirely automated, right? So there's just no typesetting stage that needs to go to and fro between a designer via PDF to an editor. That's right. I mean, uh, again, so eBooks are, you know, zip containers of HTML, right? That's why I was I started off talking about HTML is because that needed to be our end product. Yeah. That markup in an e- within an eBook is is the very same markup that you see on the web. And there's great tools for building websites, but there are very few tools in the world for building eBooks. Right. Which is why we sort of had to work a way around that, but benefit from those wonderful tools that are, that are sort of already out there. The first publishing system you built on top of Atavist, is that right? It was an online magazine publishing platform. That's sort of the final step in what I was just describing. So we sort of started out with that Word document and we'd take it through into, into Markdown, generate some nice, clean, good quality HTML. And, and Atavist you know, was a magazine publishing tool the key thing for us was they had the ability for you to output an EPUB right. out of your, your project. Um, and so, you know, we were able to create a project in Atavist, load all of that HTML text in, uh, had had great templating stuff and, and extensions we could we could write so that given the appropriate metadata, our copyright pages could just get generated automatically. You didn't need to include that in the document. Nice. You know, all our title pages, uh, everything was was just generated, which was great because it meant that if, say, the company moved address to change all of our, you know, all of our address and all our copyright pages, well, just to change it in one place and then output a new ebook. Um, well, so it was a great tool and had the functionality really that we needed mm-hmm. to output at the time both an EPUB and a, a Mobi file, which is what the format that Amazon uses for their ebooks mm-hmm. from that Atavist project source. And we were also able to make changes in, in that one place and output both of those ebook files. Mm-hmm we were able to do a little bit of tweaking in between for different retailers with our files so that, you know, the internal links, if we were trying to, you know, link to a store, would link to the specific store that the the customer was already on, that kind of thing. Oh, nice. Yeah, I just thought it was so clever to build it on top of Atavist because as someone smarter than me once told me, if, if you can get something off the shelf that does what you need, then absolutely get it off the shelf. And that's what you did, which I thought was really, really smart. Of course, a couple of years ago, Canelo decided to venture into print publishing. And I think it's kind of 
uh, poetic, hilarious, and wonderful that to think of print as a as a risky move for a company, it's kind of totally opposite to the traditional uh, world of publishing. Oh yeah, I mean, I I talk about how we we do publishing as a whole, sort of totally backwards all the time. <laughs> um, you know, we started off producing ebooks. We now produce mass market paperbacks. At some point, we'll get to hardbacks, um, and we'll sort of you know <laughs> completed the yeah. circle of of. Uh, Instead of starting with the premium edition and working our way down, right. you know, starting with the mass market stuff and working our way up. Of course, it meant you had to build something new because Edifice didn't get you high quality print layout, I believe. And getting high quality print layout from HTML is not as simple as getting an EPUB. So how did how did you tackle that problem? What what came next? Yeah, no, I mean you're right. So Adivus had no concept of print, and you know it was something really built for the web. And the eBooks were were sort of a, a side part of it, actually. I mean it was a wonderful tool for publishing. You know a lot of the long form articles in the in the New York Times were were built with Adivus. Oh, wow. Um, you know that's sort of what it was for. To start start doing things in print was was definitely an interesting journey, and it, it was a, again as far as I was aware. Nobody had really done that before. Started with an ebook and said, "How do we take this into high quality, professionally, commercially viable typeset PDF?" Mm-hmm. The answer actually just came from Pandoc again, because Pandoc will transform documents from just about anything to just about anything else. Frankly, mm-hmm. there's a graph uh, in the Pandoc project homepage, which is just this like preposterous jumble of lines. But one of those output formats was LaTeX. And that proved to be more than enough to produce really, really wonderful, beautifully typeset books yeah. at no cost at all because it is entirely open source. And for those who aren't familiar, you know, LaTeX is um, a typesetting engine that was broadly created for well, scientific publishing. Mm-hmm. There's a, a legendary computer programmer called Donald Knuth who was unhappy with how mathematics and so on just looked mm. awful and and fundamentally you know good typesetting is is just math right you know the number of of lines you want to put on a page and the number of words per line and and so on to get a, an aesthetic pleasing layout which, yeah as i say is, is just math and that's what indesign's doing in the background when you lay out some text you know all of that kerning and line lengths and lines per page and so on so, you know, Donald Knuth knows way, way more about typesetting than I'll, he's probably forgotten way more about typesetting than I'll ever know. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, to be able to benefit from the decades of typesetting expertise that are in the LaTeX and open source community mm. was wonderful because, and again, our books are simple, right? That helps. Mm, sure. You know, our books are, are commercial fiction. At best, there's a newspaper article snippet or some characters sending text messages to each other or something. But we're not talking about figures with captions or too many footnotes or pull-out tables or anything like that, which LaTeX is right. also able to do because it is designed for that sort of scientific publications. And it's one right. of the best ways for, for laying out equations right on a page sure. as well. We, we don't even have to get anywhere near any of those more complex layout. We really just needed very, very simple conversion from our EPUBs right. back into LaTeX just automating what is traditionally the typesetting phase. That's absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, once we'd kind of got it working, I typeset the first 32 books we released in print all in a couple of hours. And now that you've added print to your catalog, if you can say, what's the sales impact been? How, how's print stood up to the ebook history that Canada had? I mean, it's been pretty transformative. It's, it, we 
we always knew, and the reason we started getting into it is we knew there had to be some latent demand mm. for our books in print, right? We knew that there were readers of ours or, or potential readers of ours that wanted to read our books, but wanted to read them in print. And so, you know, like I said, we did, we did 32 when we first started out. And, you know, you we were talking about print being a risk. And the reality is that it was because Canelo is um, almost entirely, you know, self-funded company. So we didn't have big swathes of cash sitting around to pay for big print runs that we were going to sure. maybe or not make a return on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we grew organically from, from our ebook sales because they say the, the marginal cost was nothing. So, you know, the more we sold, the more money we had to spend. To move into print was sort of quite risky, especially when you start taking into account sale or return. Yeah. Which is how most books are sold in the UK. I mean, I don't know whether this was like that in South Africa. Yep. Same thing. Um, and just for those who don't know, in a sale or return situation, the bookshop will stock your books and put them on the shelf. But if they don't sell them, they're going to send them back to you and you've got to credit that purchase, which means that can be a nasty surprise a few months after publication to suddenly get a bunch of books back. And you don't have the cash you thought you had. That's right. And, and you know, and with, you know, the, the kinds of books that we, we sell or, or with other sorts of more mass market retailers, like say supermarkets, sure. you know, they'll take your book and they'll say, yeah, we'll stock 10,000 copies, but then they'll happily return 9,000 and you have to then <laughs> give them all that money back and you've got 9,000 books that what are you going to do with those? So absolutely, it's very difficult to do if you're, if you're a small business like ours, which meant that we decided we weren't going to go down that road at all. You know, when we first did those first books we exclusively did them from sale um and so we were working only with retailers that publishers in the uk call sort of special sales or firm sale retailers and we were working with an agent who represents various publishers for special sales outlets and we thought oh you know there was 40 books that we sort of pitched that we said okay try and shop these rounds see what the retailer interest is mm. for these ones and, you know, we thought they were going to pick one. We thought they were going to pick one book and they'll say, okay, and we'll take, you know, I don't know, 10,000 copies or something like that yep. of this one book. And instead, as I said, he came back and, and they wanted a 32 out of those 40. And they wanted, I was like 370,000 or so, I mean, across all those 32 <laughs> units. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we went from publishing no books, no books in print at all to, you know, this was sort of late 2018 when, when we released the first ones. To you know, by the end of 2019, we'd sold a million paperbacks. That's extraordinary. Yeah, and we sold another million paperback in 2020. So yeah, it, it's been a wonderful surprise, you know. And, it, and it's still not—we're not, not going to become a, a print-focused business anytime soon. It's still a part of our business. Now that print is also part of the output, what has changed about the workflow of how a book moves through the company now? What does the workflow look like step by step? Yeah. So when we first started doing print, you know, we were still working, you know, the way we were doing before and and, and the two sort of outputs were divergent, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, they were unaware of one another, right? I mean, we just sort of needed a finished ebook to produce a print file. But once we'd done that, really, we had a LaTeX file, which we'd use to compile the PDF with and an ebook. And they were sort of entirely separate entities. Okay. And then you've got a problem because if you've got two master versions, which one do you make corrections to? You've got more to manage. So I assume that was a bit tricky. That's right. And that's how most publishers function anyway, in that they've got you know an InDesign file, which is where they produce the PDF from. But they've also got an ebook file that if they're going to make corrections, they make corrections in both those places. Yeah. Which is, you know, wasteful and time consuming. Absolutely. And potentially um, introduces more errors. So I, you know, I wanted to move to a different way of working where, you know, we would be able to have a single source file for both our ebooks and our print versions. 
And that, that's exactly what we did. A built us, on top of the input source technology that we were already using, a tool chain that meant that we don't, we don't actually use Atavist anymore. We've instead got our own software where we rely on things like Pandoc and LaTeX in, in the background to produce both formats of our editions from the same single source file, which is now a markdown file in, in the first instance. So you would store that markdown file on your computer and then you would run your software on that markdown file and in a matter of presumably seconds or minutes, you get an EPUB and a, or a PDF saved to your machine. Is that essentially the summary? That, that, that's essentially it, definitely seconds. PDF compilations sometimes take a little bit longer, yeah. but certainly not in running into minutes, a couple of minutes at most. You know, it's, it's some software, but it's also like, it's more like a framework or a tool chain. So naming things is really hard. Um, and I sort of started <laughs> off with a joke name um, of Booker, B-U-K-R, and never really came up with anything better. So, so it's called Booker. Um, and that's joke the- Joke name stick. Yeah. And, and that's the command you need to invoke. And uh as I say, it's a framework. So, so every book is its own sort of folder, mm-hmm. and they have a common structure to them. There's that markdown file, which is sort of the main source. We, we also store various different types of metadata in another file, which is sort of YAML, which is just an easy way of having a key value pair. And then, and then when you're in one of those directories in the command line, because of that structure, software is able to recognize, okay, this is a book project. This is where I need to look for these particular pieces of information that I need to compile whatever output format is being being requested. Right. Yeah. The, the other thing is that because Markdown is just plain text, we're able to store and keep track of any changes using Git, which makes life very, very easy indeed to you know not just store, but then keep track of any changes, back things up in the cloud to whoever it is needs sharing and so on and versioning and all of that becomes very, very easy indeed. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we use Git for version control like that. And it is an absolute godsend, both when you want to see the history of a document, when you want to roll back to something, but also, as you say, for collaboration, different people can work on the document with very little risk of there being you know, mismatched versions. You just never have a problem where two people work on the document at the same time, and then you don't know which is the latest version. Those problems just disappear, which is yeah. a big win. At Electric Bookworks, my team, we've come to realize that technical publishing tools like this are incredibly powerful, but you do need some technical confidence to use them. I know that our team, none of us are originally developers. We're all literary people who found our way into this techie way of publishing. But nonetheless, we've had to learn some skills. What kinds of skills do your team have or need to have to be able to actually use these tools? Well. That is an interesting question, and it's true that the barrier to entry for making a book with Booker is is sort of higher than it would have been with Atavist site, which had a, a web interface. You had to click a button and say, download ebook. Mm. And that was one of the draws of, of us using Atavist in the first instance. We thought, okay, well, this has an online editor. So our editing team mm. can feel comfortable if they want to update somewhere where somebody spotted a mistake in a book, they can go in and it's very, very familiar. It's, um, you know, what you see is what you get editor. And you say, actually, no, I want this word bold or that or whatever. In practice, once we started working with Atavis, we found that none of our editors ever actually went in and did that. <laughs> it was always always one of our production colleagues who did it instead. Yeah. Um, and so we decided that that was a feature we could probably live live without. And so, yeah, the technical skill necessary to use Booker is... Actually, probably not huge. I mean, it requires a certain degree of familiarity with command line. You need to be able to mm. be comfortable typing in a command 
and knowing sort of what directory you're in. Yeah. But beyond that, it's more about understanding how Booker itself works and sort of, you know, where different settings live and so on. And that's just about about communication because, well, sure. I'm the one building it. So we, we talk all the time between us and the production team about what features we might need or currently don't support that we're going to put into place or what changes we might make to make our lives easier. I know that with those kinds of tools, there must be a whole bunch of little helper scripts that are built into it. Can you give me an example of, of something that the tool can do that makes people's lives a little easier in the production process? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we were sort of doing this a little bit already to our markdown files, you know, before we generated our HTML, but we've now made it a more fully formed feature of Booker. We had these sort of quite long list of, of regular expressions we were searching for to find common mistakes mm. in manuscripts. And this came out of the fact that, you know, a lot of the books we produced to begin with at Canelo were books that had been published in the past, which were, you know, quite successful, mm. but which had never had a digital edition before. Uh-huh. And so I talk about working backwards, you know, quite literally having to take <laughs> pictures of a page and optical uh, character recognition to turn that picture into text right. to then be able to produce an ebook out of this book because it was originally published in the 80s, say. And, and obviously optical character recognition is great and computers are pretty good at recognizing that an A on a page is an A, mm. but it can make mistakes, especially with, you know, an, an older text where the typesetting is maybe a little bit fuzzy and, you know, it was set sure. in metal or something like that back then. Mm-hmm. And, you know, digital files don't exist for this book at all. Yep. So, you know, the, the thing might get, say, a quote mark turned the wrong way around. And so, you know, uh, regular expression is for, you know, people who, isn't, who aren't too familiar with the term is, is a set of programming markup that you can use to do very, very advanced find. So you can search for patterns rather than searching for the exact literal string of these three characters in that order. Mm-hmm. So you can search for, for example, a close quote mark followed directly by a capital letter. That's probably meant to be an open quote mark. And so you can spot mistakes that are really, really hard for a proofreader to find mm-hmm. because it's like a needle in a haystack, but a computer will find that in seconds. And so we had quite, we had quite a long list of these regular expressions we were using to you know spot check and look out for errors. But we sort of built that into into Booker now. So the moment that you ingest a new file, um, because the source is still Word, right? We're still working with authors. Yeah. The moment you ingest that first file and create a new Booker project, it'll run all of those regular expressions and give you a list of okay, these are the ones that I've found a match for. So you need to run these for yourself and see. Because they're false positives. It might be that you know sure. there's an op- a close quote mark and followed by a capital letter. Well, maybe there's somebody with a compound name, O'Grady or something, and so that was correct. So you know you still need somebody to take a look at it, but it tells you what to look out for, and it saves lots and lots of time. Yeah, that's a huge head start for a proofreader just to have that that reference list. Yeah, I mean we don't even need to pass it on to the proofreader. We we just mop up anything that might have been missed, so the production team will just you know know to make those fixes. And I think that also speaks to another advantage of this kind of approach, which is that more than just one person can get involved in making the book better and fixing things up. You know, one of the drawbacks with the traditional approach is that all corrections get implemented by this one person, the typesetter, and all corrections are found and marked up by this one person, the proofreader. So it's a far more collaborative process, this way of doing things. Yeah, yeah, it is. It creates some, a little bit of friction sometimes with colleagues who were used to working in other places, because obviously we need to have a much more final version of the text in manuscript form. You know, we're not laying the text out on the page and doing three, four rounds of corrections 
to that laid out page. Mm, sure. And so, you know, we want the text to be much more final in the manuscript than perhaps other publishers do. Yeah. But it certainly means that we make lots of gains um, as well. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, when I was starting out in publishing 20 years ago, it was unheard of that we would go to more than two or three sets of page proofs. So page proofs being the PDF that a typesetter produces. And there was a huge pressure on us as editors to make sure that our MS Word manuscripts were so clean that the first typeset version of the book would already be almost error-free. And somehow that pressure lessened over the years until now we're in an absurd situation where I have friends and traditional publishing companies who regularly see six or seven rounds of page proofs, which essentially means that the manuscript wasn't clean in the first place when it was in MS Word, which seems kind of absurd. Yeah. So I think that that pressure to get that clean manuscript before it goes into production is always a good thing, irrespective of the technology you're using. No, I totally agree. But yeah, it, it can cause some, as I say, some friction colleagues who, I mean, you know, everybody adapts, but people are just used to it working in a different way sometimes. Zooming out as we get to time here, it's striking to me, thinking about what you've achieved at Canelo, Emma Barnes at Snowbooks, Pulling Consonants, and Dave Kramer at Hachette USA. It's amazing what technically-minded leadership can achieve. And in a, in a recent episode as well, I spoke to Raghunandan Malik at EBC, who is now the director of a 500-person company, but just a few years ago was coding their first e-commerce store himself. <laughs> That's wonderful. Do you think this kind of innovation is possible in companies whose leadership are not technically skilled. How important do you think it is to be able to make both technical and leadership decisions at the same time, kind of in the same brain? Well, I mean, obviously I think that's very important because I do it all the time. And I think it's really important for a company, well, I think it's important for a company to do it. I think if you're able to do that, you gain the ability to massively punch above your weight right as a company you can you can achieve things that only a much larger company would have been able to do otherwise mm. but i think the thing that's most important and it kind of circles back to what i said at the beginning i think it's most important isn't actually to be necessarily a programmer yourself sure but if you're to at least be sort of able to think like a programmer to be just conversant enough to understand what might influence a technical decision i mean i i it's quite difficult i think for people who aren't very familiar with technology to understand what's an easy problem to solve with computer science and what's a hard problem to solve with computer science right yeah and certainly what You've achieved it, Canelo. I don't know. I think you've tackled some hard problems, so that's that's great to see. But also, you've tackled the interface between the technology and the people. I think to see what your small team has achieved just shows what you mean by punching above your weight if you can make those technical and leadership decisions at the same time. So, yeah, well done for that. Well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, you know, like I said, I, I don't know of a publisher of our size that benefits from from the sort of single source you know, outputs, you know, I, I certainly know big companies and, you know, Dave, you know, Hashad is working with this all the time, but they have, they've got a wonderful workflow, but it's just would be, you know, not affordable for a company of our size and scale. Right. You know, and what we have probably isn't quite as fully featured and quite as capable as how they're working, but it, but it certainly gives us much, much more of capacity in that regard than, than other companies of our size for sure. Well, I continue to follow Canelo just amazed at what you guys have pulled off. Despite my early doubts, I've been thrilled to be proved completely wrong about what you can achieve with ebooks and now with prints. So well done. And 
Nick, thanks so much for spending all this time with me. I really enjoyed talking about the technical nitty gritties. So um, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, so do I. Thank you very much, Arthur. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, it would be such a help if you'd take a moment to share that with a friend or on social media. You'd be amazed at the effect that every share has on our downloads. So thanks for that too. You can point people to howbooksaremade.com where I'll also post links to things we talked about today. We'll also add a transcript of this conversation there. How Books Are Made is supported by Electric Bookworks, where my team and I make books all day, every day, in sunny Cape Town, South Africa. <laughs>